This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good to be with you guys, and thanks for coming and uh, wanting to continue to learn more about contentment, a rare jewel in a restless world. We're going to continue studying that this morning, and uh, hopefully you're able to grab an outline. Guys, there's outlines on the table. Um, you can grab. Uh, Stephen did a great job last week introducing the, cl- the class and topic. Um, if you weren't able to take that class, you can listen to it, I believe. We'll have it on the website, and um, he'll, his outline will be available as well. But, um, you know, what we're wanting to do, I mean, we're not promising that you're going to find contentment in this class, right? Like, but hopefully we're going to offer you what Scripture, what God's Word has to say about where contentment can be found, how contentment can be found, in whom contentment can be found ultimately in Christ. And what we're going to focus on this morning is this idea that contentment is not something that just magically happens, right? It's not one day you just wake up and you're like, oh, I'm content. Oh, it's happened. No, it's something that is learned. It's something that takes time. It's something that takes energy. It's something that takes God working in and through our lives to produce in us. And so I uh, thought I would title this, Enrolled in the School of Contentment. And, uh, and we're going to look at one class, as you can say, where that helps us learn contentment, and that is affliction or suffering. What does it look like to learn contentment through adversity, affliction? This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I... I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So I thought it'd be appropriate to begin this morning with a commencement speech, since we're talking about enrolling in school, learning This is delivered by a gentleman by the name of David Foster Wallace. He's not a Christian. It was delivered at Kenyon College in 2005. And while Foster Wallace is not a Christian, I think there's much in this that we can glean from and even see some of God's common grace and what he has to say here. So I put it, I'm going to read this and I put it in your outline so you could follow me. He writes this to graduate, just think of these are college graduates, commencement speech. This is what he has to say. This is a portion of it. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's, it's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. 
The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Now, we would say to worship these things is sinful, so we'll, we'll disagree with Foster Wallace on that, but, and to find our meaning in them. But I hope what you see in this is, in a lot of ways, he's right, isn't he? He's right. There is this default setting for us to worship something. There is this default setting in us to find value, to place worth in something, to find our identity in. And I'm guessing, and I'm not, I can only speak for myself here, but that when we take something good like beauty, wealth, intellect, relationships, people's opinion, status, and we turn them into these ultimate, all-encompassing realities, what happens? We become enslaved to them. We, we become enslaved to them, and they, as Foster Wallace said, they are cruel slave masters. They drive us, and they are not meant to be worshipped. So the question then is, are we just to turn off these desires and live in seclusion and rid ourselves of them, or is there a right ordering of worship? And so here, here's, the, here's the reality. When, when, we, when we do this, in essence, what we're saying is that the problem is outside of, of, of us. We're saying that it's these external realities, these things that beauty's the problem, money's the problem, this world is the problem, all these things, they're the problem. It's all these things outside of us that are the issue. But when in reality, what we have to begin to say is, no, maybe it's not the things that are outside that is the problem, but maybe it's something within. Maybe it's within that is the problem. And I think that is where the question of contentment comes in. Finding contentment does not mean voiding your life of all things of this world, right? So we're not saying you have to just rid yourself of all these things. But we have to begin by saying, then where is contentment found, and why is there this default setting to set value on something? Why is there this default setting to worship and want and, and, and place value on? C.S. Lewis, he helpfully writes, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. One of my favorite quotes is by 4th century church father Augustine. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So for us this morning, we can't pass over this too quickly. As we begin to question and learn about contentment, as we think about what is going on in our hearts, you know, he, uh, Wallace says that our hearts, they have this default setting to worship something, to attach its value to something. John Calvin would say our hearts are idle factories. So our hearts, they, they want to produce and worship idols, something that is not God, even good things like beauty. It's not bad. Money's not bad. Um, power is not bad when it's used in a way that is not authoritarian, but use, it can be used in ways that serve others. But 
when that becomes our identity, when that becomes our God, then that is not a good thing. But our hearts, they produce that so easily. So, where does this leave us here? Well, here's what Jeremiah Burroughs says. He says, a Christian coming to contentment is as a scholar in Christ's school. And there are many lessons to teach about the soul to bring it to this learning. Every godly man or woman is a scholar. It cannot be said of any Christian that he is illiterate. He is literate, a learned man, a learned woman. And so I think in this morning, we are all scholars. We are all studying and learning and seeking to find our identity, our satisfaction, our contentment in something. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is that? What is that? And if we're having a hard time saying, I'm just, I just can't be satisfied. I can't find satisfaction in the things that I'm pursuing. And our impulse is to say, well, it's just all these things that are wrong. The question I want to address this morning and ask of maybe God is putting his finger on our hearts. That maybe we are, even if we say that we love Christ with all our hearts, maybe there is this pull, this temptation to set undue, unfounded, unneeded worship and affection on things that are not God. And so I think the Lord uses whatever means to address our hearts, even suffering, even affliction he uses. I love this by John Flavel. He says, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. So there is this fight and this wrestling of like, yes, God, you are now my treasure. Christ, I worship you and I want to know you. But there is this pull still present that we can feel. That it's, it's being pulled away from keeping God central. And so that's why we have to find contentment. That's why we learn contentment. And that's why we seek to know Christ. And so that is what we're going to do this morning. I love Burroughs' definition for contentment. It's Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. A more succinct way to capture this, to be content, is to be deeply satisfied in the will of God. I think just to be deeply satisfied in the will of God. So when life is going well, it's easy to be satisfied in God, in the will of God. Yet God, he does deeper heart work in our lives through adversity and trial. So that's what I want us to consider this morning. And then after we consider finding contentment amid affliction, we're going to consider sinful complaining or murmuring. And then we're going to consider godly complaining, which may sound like an oxymoron. But scripture does have a place for us to complain godly in a godly way to God. So first, finding contentment amid affliction. So nobody enjoys affliction. I'm assuming no one in here enjoys suffering, trials, yet the reality is it is inevitable. D.A. Carson, he says, the truth of the matter is that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. So that's all we have to do, live long enough and we will encounter suffering. And it's true, all we have to do is live long enough and we will encounter it. Affliction will come in a variety of forms. Sickness comes. Tests reveal the spot to be cancer. Our good name is unjustly defamed by others. We lose a job. Money gets tight. Bills are piling up. Family relationships all just to seem to be a giant mess. And so the question is, what 
is God doing in the midst of affliction? And I would say it's in the midst of affliction where we begin to learn and see the depth of our contentment. I think when things are going well and life is good and easy, there can be this reality of like, hey, life is great. Love the Lord. But when those things start to be pulled down, when trials and suffering and affliction and hardship comes, what is the heart's response to those things? What is the heart's response when that, that diagnosis is made or that job you got a two weeks notice to where you're going to lose your job or that relationship that you thought was going so well then abruptly ends or that degree and path that you're in college to pursue is suddenly not present anymore. Those friends that you thought were so nice and that you were close then begin to gossip and slander your name. How does our hearts respond to that? And whether you're a Christian or not, when we suffer, these are the questions that are usually asked. Why me? Right? It's usually, why is this happening? What is the purpose of this? What, 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 what good could possibly come from all that is happening in my life? And I think it's for this very reason that God, in his goodness and love for us, brings about affliction brings about trials, brings about things in our life, but not because he's punishing us, not because that he is upset with us. No, it's because he loves us. And he wants to reveal our hearts, and he wants us to draw closer to him. And so we have this great example in Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's so helpful for answering these type of questions. And the apostle Paul himself, he has learned to be content. And so we have to remember, Paul, he's writing this letter not from an ivory white tower where he's protected from all suffering, all affliction, but where is he? Where is he writing this letter from? Prison. He's writing this from prison. And so, <laughs> one of the marks of this letter is joy. One of the marks of this letter that Paul is writing while in prison, and what he's encouraging these churches to do is have and live a life of joy. And so how could Paul be characterized by this true and abounding joy when, when he's writing this letter from the confines of prison? Well, I think to say he was not surprised by his suffering. Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted, he says, that we should not only believe but suffer. This idea of granting is that it is actually a gift. It is this part of the Christian calling is that God not only lets you live and glorify his name through all the goodness of living for him, but also he lets you suffer for his name. He says that it's granted. It's a gift. It's, it's a wonderful privilege that we have as Christians that when we suffer, Paul is not in prison because he's a bad guy. He's in prison because he's testifying to the gospel. He is proclaiming and making much of Christ. It reminds me of this scene in Acts 5 where the disciples, they have been told to quit preaching the gospel, quit proclaiming this Christ that was resurrected. And, and, and so they, they tell them to stop, and they said they won't. And, and this is what happens to them. They're beaten with rods. They're beaten and punished and told not to do this. And, and this was their response. This was the disciples, the apostles' response. They left the presence of this council 
rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And so, as we look to Christ, as we treasure Christ, as we find contentment in Christ, what we find is that it's not only that in our in prosperity that we can find contentment, but also in adversity. And we can rejoice in our suffering, but it is learned. And it is something that does not come naturally. I don't like to suffer. I don't like adversity. I actually like to be comfortable. <laughs> I like air conditioning. I go camping with my family in the summer, and I'm like, I'd like to get in the car and turn the air on. I'm very weak when it comes to that. Like, even just very first world amenities, I am just weak with this. But then to read Scripture and see all that, that God did through His people and their response always reminds me, always checks my heart of, hey, what is life about? Who are you living life for? What are you seeking in this life? To make much of Christ or just to be comfortable? Just, just to have an easy life? Just to have relationships that are easy? Are you willing? Are you rejoicing? Are you looking and expecting and not surprised when trials and suffering and affliction so a few ways we can embrace and find contentment in the midst of our own affliction contentment it comes oh my next page it comes by turning our afflictions into mercy so look at this philippians 1 we see this illustrated by paul in this letter he says i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me this imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I'm not sure this would have been my response to being in prison. Actually, I know it wouldn't have been. I wouldn't, if I'm writing a letter, I'm not saying that, oh, this has really served to advance the gospel. I'm saying, hey, how can we serve getting me out of here? <laughs> I'm ready to get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get out of my cell. But no, what, what is Paul doing? His perspective and how he views what God is doing in his life. He sees it as a mercy. He sees it as God is using this hard circumstance, my imprisonment, for the advance of the gospel. How do you see that? How do you recognize that? How in the world does this man be able to see past his circumstances and see and set his eyes on what God is doing in and through Christ? Well, you have to remember, this was not the first time that Paul had been imprisoned. This was not the first time that Paul had faced persecution. Paul had been, been in this place time and time again, and as he faced what I imagine is that as Paul faced each affliction, what he saw, what he learned, what he recognized is that God is faithful in the midst of all these afflictions and suffering. What Paul saw with every, with every accusation, with every persecuting moment, with every imprisonment, with every beating that he faced for the name of Christ, he rose again and said, this is worth it. I do this for the name of Christ. God and Christ himself who, who commissioned me to spread the gospel. It is worth all this because I know it's not in vain. I know that this labor, this life that I'm living, it is not just about me, but it's about what God is doing in and through me. And for that, I continue in my labor. 
I write letters and I tell others, hey, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. I have all that I need in my prison cell. Guess what I see that's taking place? Christ and the gospel is going forth in power. This suffering, this affliction, God, this is actually a mercy. Because guess what? My passion is for Christ and him crucified to go forth. And guess what? It's happening. It's happening. This is a man who is content and satisfied in Christ. He's learned that God, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, it's actually a mercy for me to be here. Oh, Lord, may each of us, if we ever come to a place where we're facing a persecution and affliction and trial or people are saying things about us, may we say and recognize, Lord, this is a mercy. William Barclay says, this is the book, The uh, Secret of Contentment. Stephen highlighted it last week. Really encourage you to get this. He, he says, the world says that contentment comes by finding release from afflictions. The Christian finds contentment in the midst of afflictions by turning them into mercies. So a personal example for me and, and, and this is really, you know, I'm very weak in this. This is not, I've never been in prison. We're not comparing our suffering here. But the Lord's done a work in my life as a homeowner. So last week I'm teaching the new members class. My wife calls me three times. And I'm like, okay, something's going on. They get to church. My daughter, Vivian, she's eight, runs up to me and says, Dad, this is serious. <laughs> and uh, so... My wife, as, as they were heading here, as they were coming here, uh, she began to hear these explosions of water in our bathroom, and we had a blockage in one of our pipes, and sewage began to shoot out of our basement toilet and just kind of cover everywhere. And so she's calling, saying, what do I do? <laughs> do I come to church? Do I stay? Like, how do I handle this situation? And, and so I don't answer. She calls, and then she comes here, and she tells me, and, you know, probably we've, we've lived in that house for seven years. If this would have happened seven years ago, I would have lost it. I would have not known what to do. I would have been distracted all morning thinking, okay, I got sewage in my basement just sitting there. And what am I going to do when I get home? And how is this problem going to be fixed? And how do I do this? And what's going to happen? You know, my mind just begins to end. I'm here. And, Lord, why is this happening? And this and that. And, but... But the Lord, we had different things happen in our home to where I had learned, okay, this is going to be fine. The Lord's going to work this out. The Lord is going to take care of us. And Lauren and I were able, by God's grace and through learning through this, is that, hey, yes, this happened, and we can worship the Lord. He will provide for us, and he did. But it's, it's, for me, it was a moment where I was just like, hey, I had to learn this. This is not a natural response for me. This was not something that I just bought a home, stuff happened, and like, hey, all right, hey, we got sewage, that's not a problem. No, it, it, this, this was a work of God in my life in learning that these things happen. You own a home, this is inevitable. You live in this, live in this world, suffering is inevitable. But as you suffer and as you live through it, God teaches you that he's with you in it. God teaches you that he doesn't waste any moment of it. And so in this moment, I just saw like, Lord, you've helped me. It's not, that, it's not that, I'm some, that I've arrived or that I'm some holy... No, you've taught me, and I have failed time and time again, but you've graciously showed me your faithfulness to where now in this point we can actually trust you and walk in it. And so I think that's just the Christian life of we are, we are seeking to know the Lord and he's seeking to teach us, and he brings these times to reveal our hearts and to teach us afresh that he is at work. 
and that our, the circumstances and situations of our life, he brings them not to overwhelm us just with suffering and pain, but he, he sends them to overwhelm us to show us that he truly is faithful. And so it's taken many years and many house problems to address my heart, and it's not done yet. But, I, but it's just the Christian life is like that. You learn that God is faithful. I love this quote by Thomas Watson. He says, A child of God keeps two books always by him, one to write his sins in so that he may be humble, the other to write his mercies in so that he may be thankful. And so what are the books you keep? What are the books you keep? What are the records that you keep? Do you keep those? What are the things that, you know, Wallace talked about, we have to constantly keep these, these realities that we're worshiping something in front of us. What are the books? What are the realities that you keep before your face as you wake up each day? Is it your failings? Is it your righteousness? Is it how much is in your bank account? What, what are the books? What are the records? What are the words? What are the promises? May it be that we write our sins in and so that they may be humble, they may keep us humble, and in light of what God has done for us, that we haven't arrived, but also that we have another to write his mercies in so that we can thank him. Secondly, we rest in God's sovereign goodness. I think it's easy for us at times to say, yes, God is sovereign. He is governing all things according to his word, to, to the purpose of his will. He is directing all things. But I think another thing that is more challenging is to say that all his purposes are good. He's not only sovereign, but he's good. So that means that all his purposes for me, no matter what they are, no matter how they come or are packaged, are not, are, they're according to his will and they're good. I think we can at times think like, yeah, God is sovereign, but when suffering or affliction comes, the question is, why is this happening to me? What good could come from this? We begin to battle, how is this good? The reality that Scripture teaches is that he's not only sovereign over all things, but he's also good. And so we can rest. I don't, think it's, I, don't think we just, I don't think Paul was just sitting in the cell saying, oh, God's in control. Oh, he's in control. He's going to take care of this. No. It's a, it, that's one way to think about it. But think about it this way. He's not only in control, but he's good. So it's not only saying, yes, God is in control of this situation, but God has me here for a reason. And, and, and it's not just because I'm some pawn that he's moving around that he doesn't care about. No, it's actually a good reason. Don't you see that begins to draw your heart to the Lord? Don't you see that begins not to pull away and just think, well, God's up there controlling it, whatever's going to happen. No, he's, he's, he's working all things according to his will. So, and it's good. His will is good for me. And so that, that pulls us. That doesn't begin to pull us away. It actually pulls us into the heart of God. So I think we have to fight to remember that God is not only sovereign. We not only rest in his sovereignty, but we also rest in his sovereign goodness. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to, is, to his purpose. So it's, I mean, I just, it's so easy for us to take these well-known verses and kind of turn them into cliches, isn't it? Oh, yeah, God, he's going to work all things for good. Oh, yeah, that's what he does. Oh, yeah, he, he, he's not going to withhold any good thing from us. That's just what he does. It's, isn't that, it's so easy, so easy to 
that to become white noise, isn't it? To, to, to begin to take these promises for granted. And, and, and to begin to think about and stop and meditate on, okay, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's true not only when things are going well, but when things are difficult. So the fight then is to remember and hold on to where is God's goodness in this? We can't just say these verses. We can't just have these go-to verses and just kind of throw them at people. We can't just throw them at ourselves. We have to camp out. This is what God does in our affliction. He, he, he causes us to go to these well-known passages of Scripture that we say yes and amen to, but when those times come, we come to these and say, apart from these truths, I'm wrecked. Apart from these truths, I have no hope. Apart from this, my response and the way that I'm going to live, the way that I'm going to move forward in faith is going to be determined by these verses. The reason that I get up in the morning, the reason I come to church and worship God on Sundays when life is hard and full of sin It's full of hardship. It's full of brokenness. It's full of pain. It's full of all these hard realities. The reason we come is because we believe these things to be true. We believe these things that that apart from God, apart from Him, we can do nothing. And it's when we walk through hardship. It's when we walk through trials. it's It's when God brings these things into our lives or because of our sin, we bring ourselves into the in them into our lives, that we begin to really wonder, do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that good can come from this? And this is where I love the story of Joseph, Genesis 50. That Joseph, he is sold into slavery by his brothers. He is taken to Egypt. He is then put into prison, and then he's ignored, and and all these things happen. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he's put into prison, and and all these hard circumstances are are happening in Joseph's life. Yet behind all those, behind a frowning providence, God has a smiling face. Behind each of these hard providences, behind each of these hard things, God is smiling because he knows, how am I going to build my people of Israel? I'm going to do it through this man I'm going to do it through him being sold into slavery and brought to Egypt. I'm going to bring him into prison, and then he's going to be raised up and put in a position of leadership. And then his family's going to come, and they're going to go and grow from a people of 70 to a people of over a million. God is just smiling as he looks on Joseph's life. And what I love about Joseph is seeing how he changes. You remember the story of Joseph at the beginning? He, he, he gets this new coat of many colors from his dad, and he's arrogant. He's proud. He's like, hey, guys, look at my new coat. Look at my new, yeah, daddy gave this to me. You got it? No, you don't have a jacket? I got a jacket. And then he, he's, he's like, oh, I'm a prophet. I'm a dreamer. Hey, do you, here's, here is what this dream means. Let me tell you about this. Well, Joseph, he goes through suffering, and he's humbled by the Lord. And at the end of the story, what we see is a different man. Joseph is much God-centered in his thinking. Joseph is able to look his brothers in the eye who has sold him into slavery and say, hey, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And I can forgive you. And I am not just going to forgive you, but I'm going I'm to put all these blessings that God has given me on our family's life, and God is going to use that. So we not only see this in Paul's life, I mean in Joseph's life, we see it in Paul's, we see it in other people's lives around us. I don't know if you know the Cummings family. We've been praying for them regularly, for their son John. 
in 2017, I believe, his, um, John was running after a movie. His heart stopped. They're taking him to the ambulance. They're giving him. They're, basically, he's being kept alive by CPR being done and oxygen being given. His heart was not beating. Uh, by God's mercy, he was spared, and he's alive, and he's doing well. Um, but then he had to have another procedure in 2019. And then he just recently had open-heart surgery. And so this little, this little boy, he's 10, I think. He has just been through so much. And, and I went back and looked at a couple of the posts uh, that they were writing during this time. And this is something that Heidi, John's mom, wrote. Even though being in the hospital on John's birthday was not what I wanted for John, I think I see indications it blessed the nurses and doctors who saw us celebrating. And I pray it glorified God in their eyes. I'm still learning to walk out my head knowledge that God's plan really is the best and wisest. What a slow learner I am. (laughs) And to talk to Clint, John's dad, in this trial, he would always just end by saying, hey, God is good. And when I... God is good. When I hear those words come off of his lips, and when he's here leading his family, and he is here worshiping God, I, those do not pass through my ears quickly. But they are just like, God is sufficient. God is good. He is able and at work in each of our lives. Number three, embracing the sanctifying effect of suffering. It gets our attention like nothing else in this world. Romans 5 Um, Paul writes that we rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame. So I love C.S. Lewis. He says that pain and suffering, they are God's megaphone to wean us from this earth. He writes, pain insists upon being attended to. You can't ignore it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Um, see, um, Charles Spurgeon had this illustration. He tells a story, this well-known painter, he's working on a high platform on this, in this cathedral. And this, this painter, he's walking on the platform high above, looking at the painting, looking at all the details. And he doesn't realize he's about to walk off the edge. Doesn't realize he's about to die. He's about to fall to his death as he's fixated on this painting and all that he's been working on. Well, he had this apprentice below. And the apprentice, he didn't want to yell because he knew it would startle him and then he would fall. So what did he do? He took a paintbrush, dipped it in paint, and he threw paint up on this painting. And that got the painter's attention. He was like, hey, what are you doing? And he began to come down and just tell him, hey, what were you doing? Why are you? I just worked hard on this. But then he looked up, and he saw, and he recognized, hey, if you didn't do that, my life would have ended. My life would have ended. And, and Spurgeon, he says that the enraged painter came forward, confronted his assistant, but only then did he realize that the ruin of his work meant the saving of his life. And I think God does that at times. We can think, why was my life? It was going so well, but then this happened. And it just changed everything. And I would say it's in those moments that God is doing a deeper work. That he's doing something in your hearts deeply to draw it closer to him. At times we can be so enamored with our own life in this world that it's God's kindness that he comes and he wakes us up. Wakes us up. We can't. When pain comes, when suffering comes, when trials come, it jars us. I don't like it. I don't like pain. I'm a bird to it. If I get hurt, I'm like, ow, that hurts, and you look for it. When trials come, you have you it wakes us up to what where am I putting my satisfaction and hope in? What am I looking to for contentment? And when God does this, it helps us and it and 
and it sanctifies us. It, it makes us more like his son. So let's briefly talk about two responses. Sinful complaining and murmuring. Philippians 2 says this, Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The Paul, so murmuring, that's onomatopoeia, right? It, it, it sounds like what it means. So the, the original for murmuring that Paul uses here, it's an onomatopoeia word. It, it, and it, it sounds like you're murmuring. And, uh, as, and when he wrote this, he had in mind, and he wanted his readers to be reminded of the grumbling Israelites. He's saying, don't be like the Israelites of old. Don't be like them. Don't, don't be like them where God would deliver them and he would answer their prayers, but then they would find something to complain about. And, and I, love, I love this illustration. I love this response with complaining that Jeremiah Burroughs, that, that he writes about. So here, listen to this. This is the first lesson that Christ teaches any soul, self-denial, which brings contentment, which brings down and softens a man's heart. So listen to this. You know how when you strike something soft, it makes no noise. But if you strike a hard thing, it makes a noise. So with the hearts of men who are full of themselves and hardened with self-love. If they receive a stroke, they make a noise. But a self-denying Christian yields to God's hand and makes no noise. When you strike a woolsack, woolsack, it makes no noise because it yields to the stroke. So a self-denying heart yields to the stroke and thereby comes to this contentment. Isn't that helpful? That, like, what happens when things don't go the way you want them? Complaining, it's not just the result of hard circumstances. It's the fruit of a hardened heart toward God. We have to recognize that. Complaining is not just the result of hard circumstances, but the fruit of a hardened heart toward God. Complaining reveals more about us and our hearts that are that is still set on ourselves. Instead of bending in humility toward the Lord, we buck against it and his plans. And this is something that we are very, or at least I can say, I am very good at. Even the recent time change, I've just found myself complaining, man, it's dark now, isn't it? Man, it's this, isn't it? you know, it's like I'm tired. Something like a simple time change. I can just be, I just see this complaining in my heart that just comes. And we have to ask God to help us to fight against that. We also have to fight the tendency to forget. The tendency to forget is something all of us deal with. Forgetfulness is no respecter of persons. When you read through the Bible, what you discover is the people of God are not immune to forgetfulness. I would say, in fact, we are prone to it. December, uh, Deuteronomy 6 says, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Just amazing to consider. All... That happened with the people of Israel. After all that God had done to rescue them, the Red Sea, all these amazing miracles, yet they would continually complain and question God. And we are no different than they. As the song says, our hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Do you feel your heart prone to wonder? Do you feel that? I feel that at times. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We just live in this age of distraction. The, all the messages and all the social media, all these things are trying to distract us and cause us to forget and be content with who God is and what he's doing in our life. So we have to fight this temptation to forget. We have to fight this temptation to forget all that God has done and all that he is doing. 
And it's also a fight, not just the, the forgetting, but also a fight to remember. When's the last time that you remembered how God protected you from making shipwreck of your life? When's the last time you remembered how God graciously let you grow up in a godly family? That God awakened you to the ugliness of your sin? That, you, that how you had mentors and key friends to guide you in your faith? That God sustained you during a season of unemployment, maybe? That God maybe healed you? That this impossible prayer request that, God, that you've been praying for, God answered that. That maybe at one point you had no money or barely any money and an envelope just showed up in the mail with exactly what you needed. How the gospel made you alive. Do you remember God? It's not just that we forget God, but it's also that we don't remember God. <laughs> it's, and it's those specific remembrances. It's not just remember kind of God. No, God who has worked in your life specifically, personally, answered specific prayers that you prayed, met you intimately and deeply when you were hurting. He never abandoned you. He sent just the right person when you needed it. He sent the right amount when you needed it. He, he brought and surrounded you and comforted with people when you needed it. You specifically. When was the last time you remembered and thanked God that he did that? And then lastly, there's godly complaining. Psalm 142, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for their mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And so we can bring our complaint to the Lord. It, here's what godly complaining does. It brings our complaints to God, whereas sinful complaining and murmuring, we just complain about God. And so it's more of we're bringing our complaints. It's this idea of lament. The Bible talks about the, the people of God, Psalm 42, they're lamenting so that it gives voice to our pain. It gives voice and it gives words to um, our pain and suffering. And so we can pray and cry to God and, help, and ask for help and express that these things do hurt and that life is hard. God wants us to do that, but he, but he does it in a way to where it's God-centered and it's all about what he's doing. It's not about getting us out of the situation, although that's fine, but it's more, God, help me to trust you in and throughout this situation. And so we want to complain in a way that honors the Lord. We want to complain in a way to where we're bringing our requests, our needs, our hopes, our hurts, our wants to him. Psalm 37 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And I think as we age, what we will see is God is faithful, and he protects us, and he invites us to enjoy him and know him and be satisfied in him. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for this morning, and thanks for these people coming. I pray that they would learn this learn what it means to be content, that they would find contentment, they would find this rare jewel in Christ, that you would be their treasure, that they would love you, that, they, that whether it's abounding or whether it is through times of hardship, that you would meet with them and they would trust you and know you and follow you and they would not only see your faithfulness, but they would declare it, that my God is faithful, that he is good, he has, he has ordered and led me and he has never forsaken me, and I can trust him and be satisfied with all that he brings. So, Lord, help us, each of our hearts, help us, Lord, to be content and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. 
Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.